Well, one of the most common questions I get asked as a Christian is this. How can you believe in a God when there is so much pain and suffering in the world? I don't know if you've asked that question uh, or you've been asked that question by someone. But not a day goes past as you look around at the world around us without some tragedy occurring somewhere. Whether it's uh, losing your money, a natural disaster, an act of terror, or just an innocent accident. Every day causes pain in the hearts of many, doesn't it? And as you stand back and think about it, it makes you wonder, surely this isn't the way it's supposed to be. I'm sure for many of us, somewhere along the line, you felt that same pain too. It might be the constant burden of sickness or the sting of a broken relationship. Surely this isn't the way it's meant to be. Now, I need to confess, as we begin this talk, looking at why is there so much pain and suffering in the world, I have to confess that I haven't seen that much suffering in my life. Uh, I had one experience when I was about 16. Uh, I lost vision in the left-hand side of my body and then kind of didn't feel very well at all. And they took me to the doctor and found out that uh, I had a blockage in the middle of my brain. And so I needed to have brain surgery to kind of release that blockage. I remember lying on that trolley, uh, going into the operating theater, looking at the drill that was about to go into my head and thinking, man, this could be it. Uh, This could be it. Uh, I had some experience of that. Um, Throughout our family, we we lost our first child in a miscarriage. uh, And that was kind of a a time of working out why God. And uh, just over a year ago, Sarah was diagnosed with a tumor at the base of a pituitary gland in her brain. But all of those areas, God has kind of carried us through, and they haven't been things that have consistently plagued us. And so I feel like as I stand here talking through some of that small amount of the taste of suffering we've experienced, I need to say that that's just small compared to what you may be going through right now, compared to what those you know are working through. I don't know where all of you have come from today, but I do know the God that made all of us. And that God has something to say to us about the problem of suffering and how we might understand the God who is in control. But before we get into looking at that, why don't we pray and ask God to help us to think through this topic with his eyes and see the answers that he holds out to us. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much that you are not silent, that you have not kept away from us that while we look at a world that is broken and mourning and what it seems like it shouldn't be, that you have spoken. Father, as we look around at the world around us and see the suffering that exists, we long for it to be taken away. We ask, Lord, that you would walk alongside those who are feeling its burden and weight and that today as we look at this topic, you wouldn't overwhelm us with pain and sorrow but that you would show us the joy that comes from the solution to suffering that you have held out. Father, we ask today as we look at this topic that we would hear your love and the future that you are holding out to us. Help us today to think clearly and helpfully about who you are and what you are doing. Amen. Well, at the end of this talk, there's going to be some questions that we've had the whole way through this series. So if you want to ask questions, please pop them through to the number on the screen. Uh, and we'll, we'll come to those at the end of the talk. Well, the question that causes many of us to doubt or disbelieve in God is this. What sort of God would allow suffering and evil if he had the power to stop it? What sort of God would allow suffering and evil if he had the power to stop it? 
We look at the events of the world around us. We see the tragedies happening on our TV screens and in our families and amongst our friends. And the temptation is there to think that because suffering and evil and disease exist in our world, that either God is not good or that he's not in control. There are two things that come up all the time. This idea that God is not good or he's not in control. See, if, if God has the power to stop suffering and evil and chooses not to, then surely he's not good, right? Or maybe he's not in control. Maybe he wants to stop it, but he can't. But either way, we come to a problem. Who wants to follow a God that is not good or is not in control? And so for many, they walk away from God. And while the face of it, that sounds like a good argument. It actually has all sorts of problems. I want to slow down and just work through this argument a little bit at the beginning before at the end, then we work through what the Bible says about pain and suffering and disease. Because this problem actually, this argument actually has all sorts of problems. See, the existence of suffering and evil can't prove or disprove God. I want to say this, it's really important, I'll repeat it again. The existence of suffering and evil cannot prove or disprove God. I'm going to give you two reasons why, two assumptions behind that question, that that the existence of suffering and evil disproves God. Firstly, people come along and they say that God can't be good if he allows suffering and evil. Problem is that that assumption assumes that if evil and suffering appear pointless to me, if I can't see any reason why they're happening, then they must be pointless. It must be evil. It must be bad that if God allows those to happen. But just because you you and I can't see a reason why things are happening doesn't mean there can't be one. So often my kids look up to me or out to me and go, why are you doing this? This is crazy, Dad. Like, you know, this is horrible. You're so mean and unfair and they don't understand what's going on because they don't see the bigger picture. Could it be that there is a bigger picture going on than what we can see in front of us? In the book of Genesis, uh, in the Old Testament, uh, we meet a man named Joseph. Uh, Joseph was a bit of a dreamer. He had these dreams that came to him about how special he was. And because of that, his 11 other brothers hated his guts. No one loves a dreamer. No one loves a guy that says, look at me. You're all going to bow down to me in the future. Which is what he'd said because it was what he'd seen in this dream. And so they take him and they throw him in a pit, hoping that he'll die. And then they see some kind of traders come along like rather than kill him let's just sell him off to these traders and I'm, I'm sure as he's standing in the pit and then hears the noise of these camel traders coming along he's going this is not good is there really a god who is in control at this point in time i'm pretty sure he would have been praying to the god he trusted him to say please stop this snap my brothers out of it but at that moment god gave no help into slavery joseph went now if we pause the story right there we stand back and go, what a terrible and tragic evil. That the 11 brothers would basically kill and then sell off into slavery their own brother. What an evil that is and for no good. What is the point? We throw our hands up in the air and say, who are you, God, to make this happen? But that's not where that story ends. Though Joseph experienced pain and misery, he was refined and strengthened. Eventually, God put him in the position to become the prime minister of Egypt. He served Egypt and the descendants of his family and and countless others by saving them from a famine. God used the brothers' evil intent to bring about some plan. Years later, the brothers actually come begging to food for Egypt, not knowing Joseph's position. And they come before Joseph, begging. And then they recognize who he is. 
And Joseph says these words. It's on the screen from Genesis 50, verse 20. He says to his brothers, You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good, to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. You intended to harm me. There was evil intent from the brothers, but God intended to use their evil to bring about his good and saving plan. See, if God didn't allow the years of suffering, Joseph would never have been in Egypt, never been given the position of authority that he was in, and so never been able to tell the Pharaoh to store up for seven years of famine that would come. Thousands, hundreds of thousands, millions would have died. The promise God had given to Abraham uh, that he would be a great nation and be blessed and that God would save him, that would be gone as well because they would all be dead from famine. There's a general principle in life And success comes through hardship. No pain, no gain, right? With time and perspective, most of us can see sometimes reasons for at least some of the tragedy and pain that occur in life. Ways God uses it to bring about truth. I was speaking to someone just last year and they were talking through the pain that they'd been experiencing. It was sickness and just how hard it had been Uh, But his friend said to me, do you know, if I hadn't had this, I would have just continued on my life as a comfortable Christian, focused on all these other things in life and not realized how important God was. He said, I wouldn't swap it, the pain that I'm still in right now, because now I know my God and I depend on him. God uses all sorts of things to bring us back to him. So if we recognize that principle in life, no pain, no gain, Why couldn't it be possible that from God's point of view, there are reasons for the pain that we experience? Good reasons. Pain doesn't necessarily mean that God is evil. To claim that there are no good reasons is incredibly arrogant. It's to say that I can see the world perfectly and I know this is totally wrong and no good can come out of it. Who do we think we are when we say that? I'll tell you who we think we are. We're playing God. I want us to be clear here. I'm not trying to say that, that this proves that God exists. But at least it opens up the logical possibility that there's more going on in this world than we can see. And that the claim that the existence of suffering and evil means God does not exist, it's nowhere near as strong as some make it out to be. Maybe God is good and has a plan. The second assumption behind that argument is this, that it's unjust for God to allow suffering and evil. We come along and we say, that's not right. How dare he he kind of allow some people to go through all sorts of pain and disease and not others? That's unjust. How can he do that? And the question we need to ask ourselves behind this assumption is, where do I get my idea of just and unjust from? Where does that idea of what is just and what isn't come from for us? I want to put it to you that if God doesn't exist, then justice is just my own private idea. There's no kind of common view of what justice is my idea of justice doesn't apply to anyone else it's just my view and not someone else's so if god doesn't exist then there's no such thing as a universal concept of what justice is but the very fact that humanity has such a strong sense of justice and we do when when someone does wrong we want the wrong righted we're like that's not fair that's not right where does that come from The very fact that I have a problem with the injustice of the world points to the possibility that there is a universal justice. 
And if there is a universal justice, that's probably come from the one who has made us. It points to the probability that there is a creator. The argument that God wouldn't be fair or right to allow that to happen actually points us to there being a creator. The person who uses suffering injustice to disprove God is actually using an argument that moves them closer to the existence of universal right and wrong, closer to the reality of, of the concept of God. See, if there were no God, if we were all just products of random events, then what would our basis be of saying something is evil or wrong? We're just accidents. We just happened. We believe in natural selection. The whole evolutionary mechanism of natural selection depends on death and destruction and violence. It's the survival of the fittest, right? And so we just stand back and say, well, the fittest should win, and that's the best for the human race. So the sick or the person who has some disease that isn't kind of the prime specimen of what we think someone should be, we would say, oh, well, they can just die. That's where natural selection pushes us. But there's something about that that makes us say, no, no. Peter Singer is an, an Australian philosopher uh, who's an atheist. He's quite a strong atheist. And for a long amount of time, he's been saying, yes, we just need to, that's, that's, there is no moral right and wrong. It's just about the good of the best. So the best for all. He's what you call a universalist, where we, we just see the, the best good coming out of everything. And so he has been saying and has said very strongly that if someone is sick, well, that's just how it is, I'm afraid. At least he's consistent, or he was consistent, uh, until his grandmother became very sick and she was on life support and he wouldn't switch it off. See, it's not livable. He, He couldn't live out his philosophy that we just exist as random events and random chances. He recognized there was something good about this person, his grandmother, and didn't want to switch it off. If there is no God, evil and suffering are perfectly natural. What right do we have to say that any of it are wrong? Horrifying wickedness can only exist if there is a way that we are supposed to be. What I'm trying to show us this morning is that the existence of evil and suffering is a problem not just for Christians, but for everyone. It simply cannot disprove the existence of God. I want to put it to you today that if you have this question, if you see that there's right and wrong and good and evil, that it actually pushes you toward a God. The likelihood of an external moral guide. So if that's the case, what does Christianity have to offer on the topic of suffering and evil and disease? What does the Bible have to say on this? Well, firstly, as we come along to this topic, Christianity doesn't try and hide that it exists. Um, Basically, Buddhism will say the way to exist in the world around us is to imagine that external influences on us don't affect us. You kind of, you you mentally move them away to nothingness and you get yourself to this position where nothing can affect you, either good or bad. And so you exist, hopefully, into what goes on as an everlasting nirvana where nothing can impact you, good or bad, because it doesn't exist. In the end, that's just not satisfactory. The reality is we do hurt, we do bleed, we do die. It does hurt. And that's exactly what the Bible says. The Bible is clear that suffering exists and it's clear that suffering is not the way it's supposed to be. Suffering is not the way the world is supposed to be. Genesis tells us that when God made the world, that it was good. When he made humanity, we were good. It was just as God would have it. Uh, The trees were treeing, the birds were birding, you know, everything is kind of... 
I like the King James Version. It says the creepy things that creepeth and the swarmy things that swarmeth. I don't know. Sounds cool. The creepy things sound a bit weird, but everything was the way God wanted it. Humanity was in right relationship with God, living with him as the king over the world. We were ruling well. There was no disease or sickness. It was just as God had made it. The problem is, humanity rejected the good order God set up. We went against our maker, Adam and Eve in the garden, rebelled against God and said, I want to live my way. This tree that you said do not eat from, whatever it was, I think I know better than you. And so I'm going to determine what right and wrong is. I'm going to determine what knowledge truly is because I think I know better than you. Now that moment, death came into the world. Suffering is the inevitable outcome of a world living at war with its creator. It's the inevitable outcome of a world living at war with its creator. Let me illustrate. If someone makes a plane, I I love planes. There's something about them that just amazes me. This chunk of metal hanging in the air. It doesn't fall out of the sky. How how is that? They're amazing. They're such great machines. They get us places quickly. Beats walking or swimming, depending on where you're going. Planes, I think, are amazing. They're a good thing. But if you use a plane to fly into a building in a way that is not its intent, you're not using it the way it was intended to be. And what comes of that is a whole kind of swarm of horrible disaster. People dying, fear coming across. It's going to cause pain. Planes were not made to land in buildings. So it is with the world that God made. When you use the world that God made in a way that is not intended to be, it's going to cause pain. Have a look at Genesis three twenty-two, and listen to the result of humanity turning their backs on God. And the Lord God said, the man has now become like one of us, knowing good and evil. He must not be allowed to reach out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. So the Lord God banished him from the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he had been taken. That moment, death, and pain and suffering came into the world because our first parents, Adam and Eve, rebelled against the good creator. They tried to live in a world that God set up that was good and right in their own way, which resulted in brokenness and a pale reflection of what the world was created to be. And that is the world that we live in today. Suffering exists because we are broken. Not just because Adam and Eve did something so long ago, but because we ourselves are broken. We do suffer. I never want to minimize that. But I want to put it to you today that we also cause suffering. You and I are broken. You know that time that you lost your temper with someone else and caused them to cry? Or that time when you trod on someone getting to to go where you want to go and you didn't care about what they thought? That time that you ignored your kids or I ignored our kids? because we're just too tired or busy and we cause pain for them. That time we, we gossiped about that work colleague or that uni colleague or we caused pain in someone else just because we were frustrated with them or we said that awful thing. There are scenes in your mind right now of times you've said and done things like I have said and done things where I've caused pain in the life of others. I'm sure I've caused pain in the life of many of you here. I don't know if you've thought about this much, but we cause a fair bit of suffering ourselves. So if we want God 
to get rid of all the suffering and evil in the world. If we want to stand back and say, God, why are you allowing suffering to go on in this world? Get rid of it, please. You're asking him to get rid of you and me because we cause suffering. If you want to end suffering right now, you're asking God to end you. If you're here today and you're wondering why God hasn't put an end to the evil and suffering and disease in this world, it's because he loves you. It's because he wants you to recognize he has a solution to suffering at great expense to himself. Yes, it hurts now, but he too has suffered and he wants you to see today that there is a solution to this. And so he does not end me or you right now, although he should, because we cause suffering in the lives of others. The end to suffering has not come because God wants you to meet his son and to trust him. See, God knows what it's like to suffer. He knows what it's like. In fact, he's experienced the most intense suffering the world has ever seen, more than you or I could ever imagine. Think about this for a moment. The creator of the universe, God the Son, Jesus, is nailed to a cross. He's sustaining the heartbeat of those that are hammering the nails into his arms. They've whipped him, they've beat him, as they've watched him die a criminal's death on a Judean hillside 2,000 years ago. Jesus experienced pain. More pain than I've ever experienced. But it wasn't the physical pain that hurt him the most. See, for the first time in the history of the universe, the relationship between God the Father and God the Son would be broken. Relational pain hurts that bit more, doesn't it? When there's that argument we've had with someone, them turning their backs, them not treating us as a friend anymore. I don't know how you felt when a friendship ends or a family member doesn't want anything to do with you or a child or a parent says, get out of my life. At that moment on the cross, not only did Jesus experience that physical agony of death on a Roman cross. But he experienced the wrath and anger of his father, the creator of the universe, the wrath and anger that had been stored up for all of humanity being turned against God from the beginning of time to the end of time. All of that was being poured out on Jesus. Why? Because he loved us. Both God the Son and God the Father loved us. At that moment, at the cross, Jesus let out a cry. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? At that moment, it reminds us of a psalm we just read, that Mana read so well. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? What's going on at this moment? Had God forsaken his son? Was this the first time in humanity that, that the father had had a break with the person of the son? Yes, it was. Was it because the son had done anything wrong against the father? No. Was it because of some wicked desire of God to kind of pour out anger on his son? No. It was because of the father and the son's love for you and me. See, when Jesus died on that cross, he willingly allowed the father to place the penalty of the sin of the whole world, past, present and future, on Jesus' shoulders. The penalty for your rejection of God and my rejection of God was on Jesus at that moment. Peter, one of Jesus' closest friends, sums it up in 1 Peter 3.18. He says this, For Christ also suffered for sins, 
once for all. That word all has you in mind. Christ also suffered for sins once for all. The righteous, that's Jesus, for the unrighteous, that's us, that he might bring you to God. What was going on on that cross was Jesus was taking the rap for you and me. For the times we thought we're a better ruler of God's world than he is. Jesus was willingly say, I'll take your penalty so you don't have to take what you deserve. When I was a boy, I um, had this love of ants. They're amazing. They kind of crawl around everywhere. In Australia, you get big ants like that. Seriously, like jump. But they're not good ones. Um, but I remember the time I found my granddad's old magnifying glass. And I'd seen on uh, this cartoon on TV, I think it was a Roadrunner cartoon, that if you get a magnifying glass, and it's a really hot day, like today, um, there are no kids here, and maybe don't do this at home. Uh, and what you can do is you can hold it to the sun and focus the rays of the sun into one spot. If you've got a bit of paper, it kind of might catch on fire. If you do it on your hand, it hurts. Um, well, you could also do it with like ants on, on a fence post. As they're kind of crawling along, you could try and like zzz, see if you can kind of... Now, they never burnt up or anything like that. But it was just this kind of fun thing that you do and make sure you didn't light anything else. As Jesus cried out those words on that cross 2,000 years ago, it was like God was holding a magnifying glass that was big enough to catch everything that everyone and ever did, uh, did, said, or done. Anything was ever thought that was against God. And that magnifying glass was capturing everything from everyone, not only who was alive, but throughout all human history from the beginning of time to the end of time. And he was focusing the anger that God rightly deserved, the punishment that we rightly deserve, that God rightly should pour out on us, at that moment, onto Jesus. Far greater than the power of the sun that, that, that God had created. Far greater than the power of all the suns in the universe. What was captured in that giant magnifying glass was God's rightful anger and punishment towards humanity for turning our backs on God. And Jesus said, I'll take it. And it burnt. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He, he knew why. He did it because he was providing the solution to suffering, the solution to people who cause suffering. Friends, Jesus knows what it's like to suffer far beyond you and I. And he did it for us. He chose to do it because he loves us. He did it so you don't have to face that future forever. My guess is that there are many of you here today who are experiencing some kind of suffering. And for you, it can seem like God just doesn't care. He's, he's so distant, sitting up there in the clouds, doing whatever he wants. But the Bible couldn't be clearer that God cares so deeply for your pain and your suffering that he's willing to face it with you. More than that, he's willing to face it for you. The reality is that in this life, the Bible expects suffering and evil. For we live in a world that is broken, where people have turned our backs on God. Jesus says, in this world you have trouble, but take heart, I have overcome the world. It's in John 16, 33, if you want to check it out later. But Jesus promises another reality. Not only did he face death in our place, history records that Jesus rose from the dead, showing that death the consequence of rebellion against God, had been defeated. And that's where we see that Jesus offers the ultimate solution to suffering. Life after death. 
real life is what he's on offer. That's his claim. He's not just some guy who says, oh, look, there's going to be life after death. He's the guy who died and rose again, never to die again. They couldn't find his bones. If they could have, they would have said, see, proven it. History records Jesus has risen from the dead. And what that means is that death has been defeated. And what he said is that he would rise from the dead. And he was coming back to offer that to those who trusted that he had died in their place. That he would reverse what happened in the garden with Adam and Eve that day. He would give us life that lasted forever in right relationship with God. What this means is that every horrible thing that has ever happened will not only be undone and repaired, but it will somehow make the eventual glory and joy of eternity even greater. There'll be a sense in which when we we get to the end and we see what God was doing, taking the evil and the sicknesses of the world that are wrong and bringing about God's purposes through them. And we'll stand back and say, wow, how amazing you are. That you've carried me and others through this that you've suffered even more than what we've all gone through for us, and now you've given us an eternity, life with you forever. Let's listen to the picture John, another one of Jesus' closest friends, paints of that life to come. It's in Revelation 21 on the screen. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Now the dwelling of God is with men, and he will live with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain. For the old order of things has passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, I'm making everything new. Then he said this, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. The one who is seated on the throne is the one who died for you and me is the one who is coming to wipe every tear from every eye when there is a new heaven and a new earth, a new creation where death has been abolished. And we get access to that world only through Jesus dealing with the suffering that we've caused against others, against God on the cross, by trusting in him. The Bible doesn't expect that life will be a breeze now. We're living in a world that's hell-bent against its maker. It's thrashing out. The Bible doesn't expect no suffering. In fact, it says we will suffer now. But the Bible lays out for us such a hope, such an answer, that the suffering that we face in this life will be but a blimp on the radar of eternity. If I suffer for, say I live to what? what, 110, it's not going to happen. But say there's 110, right? And, and, And I have the worst life possible. What is 110 years in 40 billion when there's another 40 billion more coming and another 40 billion more that does not end? What is that time? And throughout that time, I get to know the God who has suffered more than me, who has loved me, who has died for me, who calls me his brother, who reconciles me to the Father and who offers me eternal life with no more sickness, mourning, crying or pain. I am so short-sighted. As we face suffering today or tomorrow, We might not know what's going on, but we can know the God who knows what's going on. We might not be able to see why it's happening, but we know that God knows why it's happening. And God says, trust me. I've suffered for you. I've provided the solution to your suffering and I've offered you an eternity. So come and trust me. 
Trust the one who knows what it is like to suffer, the one who suffered for us. Let me end with a letter from someone who I knew personally, uh, someone that was there the day that Jesus cried out to his father, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? A letter that was written to us. This is from Peter in 1 Peter 4. Dear friends, do not be surprised at the painful trial you are suffering, as though some strange were happening to you. But rejoice that you participate in the sufferings of Christ so that you may be overjoyed when his glory is revealed. So then, those who suffer according to God's will should commit themselves to their faithful creator and continue to do good. You might not know why you are suffering, but you can know the God who knows why. And he says, trust me. Peter says, trust him. Christianity doesn't give you the nice, neat explanation for every in and out of why you or I are suffering now, but it does provide us with the solution, hope, eternal life, relationship restored with the God who would love you enough to suffer for you. So if you haven't already, or if you need to again, I want to encourage you today, as I encourage myself, to run to the one who suffered for us in our place. I don't have the answers to suffering. You, don't, you can't stand back and go, yes, I'm going to solve this. But God has at the cross. So run to him. The greatest travesty today would be to allow the, the suffering that humanity causes in life to pull us away from the one who suffered for us. To say to God, oh, I can't believe you're like this. And walk away when he suffered for us and offered us eternal life. Today, don't run away from Jesus. Let the suffering we experience draw us to him, to the one who knows what it's like to suffer and to the one that has suffered in our place so that we won't have to face death and suffering forever. How about I pray? Then we'll answer some questions. Father God, we want to thank you so much that you have not left us in the dark. That while we experience suffering in the world around us, that we can see that that comes because of the brokenness of humanity. We want to acknowledge that we've played a part in that. And we ask today that you would fix our eyes on the amazing news of what Jesus has done. That he would suffer for us. That he would provide a future that... There is no more sickness or mourning or crying or pain. Father, we ask that you would carry us through the hardships in this life. We'd experience the joys of doing that as a, as a church family and encourage one another and walk alongside one another. All the while, we fix our eyes on what is to come. And we pray, Lord, that you would use the suffering that exists in the world to break us out of our arrogance, to think that we know what we are doing, and help us run to the one who has suffered for us. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks, Ryan. We've got a few questions that have come in for you. Uh, I think they'll be up on the screen. The first question is picking up on, at the start, you worked through the arguments against God that come mm-hmm. from suffering and critiques the idea that it, we don't really have a category for justice or injustice mm-hmm. if it's not for God. So the first question is asking, why is it incorrect or implausible to say that the universal view of right and wrong, evil or good, come from what's the majority view and what's mutually beneficial for society to operate? Yep, great question. Uh, it's because it's not universal. And so it's in the very thing, it's, if it's saying it's a majority view, that means that there are people who disagree 
And so should just the majority rule? So if I'm in... And which majority? Is it the global majority? How do we work out which majority should have that view? Um, So, you know, all sorts of atrocities have happened through governments deciding to do certain things. People have gone along with it. Uh, And it has just not turned out well. We are not good at setting what is good and right ourselves. We're broken. Um, Society allows all sorts of things to happen. Um, I'll go to controversial areas. Uh, Even our own government recently, uh, and you might be in different positions on this, but it's kind of bringing in this push that um, to abort a child at a certain stage is okay. Um, If that child's left, it's not just an organ. Um, If that child is left, it grows to be a child, and yet we kind of go along. The majority of our kind of nation would say, yeah, I think that's pretty much okay. Uh, We're approaching this idea that euthanasia is okay. But it's all right to end a life if someone says they want to. But there's all sorts of problems that brings in. And I think it will just show, if we go down that path, the ugliness of our own moral standards as, as a unity. Uh, and so as you stand back and look at it, we end up in areas that really are quite kind of odd. Uh, and then who is the majority? Uh, ha- ha- there is no universal. There is no one thing that everyone agrees on. Uh, whereas with God setting that, it seems to be the thing that many agree on but that he is the one who's made us, and so he gets to call it universal at that point. That's helpful. So you're saying, if we go down this line, then what's, what is suffering, what is evil, what is just, what is unjust, will just flux and change yep. across history. Yep. Yeah, not very stable there. Cool. Uh, the next couple of questions come from your point that suffering exists because we're broken. Yep. And so you took us to Genesis 3, verse 22, which showed that humans knew good and evil. Now, is that not something that God wanted? Isn't it good that we know what's good and evil? Uh, so Genesis 3, uh, we're at 22. Uh, the Lord man, um, says this, The Lord God said, The man has now become like one of us, knowing good and evil. He must not be allowed to reach out his hand and take from the tree uh, of life and eat from it. Uh, the word knowing there is more than just like I, I, I've got knowledge of it. It's like an intimate knowledge of. Um, so later on, that same word is used when Abraham lay with his wife Sarah and knew her. You get it? An intimate knowledge of one another. They were so entwined with one another in their knowledge of one another. What this is saying is that Adam and Eve were so entwined in their knowledge of good and evil that they were determining what was good and what was evil. God had said, don't do this. They've come along and now they're not just knowing what is good and what is evil, but they're so intimately entwined with it that they are doing what is evil, what is wrong toward God. And so, yes, I mean, it's obvious that they knew that, that was wrong because God had said, do not do this. Um, and so Eve had repeated what obviously Adam had passed on uh, when, when the serpent came to her and said, you know, this looks great. And she said, but God said we must not touch it. And she added to what God said, um, must not eat it or even touch it. Uh, so she knew this. She knew what was right and wrong. It's not that they didn't know it. They were so like naive. It's that now they've become entwined with evil and that is the very nature of what they are like. Because evil is saying, I know what is right, not what God has said is right. Helpful. I love those questions about what the Bible is saying there. So good to hear that one uh, plumbed into a little bit more. The, the next question on a similar theme. So some suffering is caused by humans uh, because we're broken. But there's other suffering like natural disasters where the link between evil and its consequence isn't as obvious. Yep. Uh, what's going on with that and how would you talk with victims of such events? Yeah. So as we look at the world around us, it doesn't just come from like a tsunami. doesn't happen because someone got angry one day. Uh, or someone did something. I think Romans 1 is the answer to that. If you want to flick to it, it'd be helpful just to know this. I don't know what page it's on in the Bible you've got, but 
Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, Romans. Um, I always struggle to find where this is at the start. Is it two? Have you got it in your head? Perhaps it's chapter eight, if it's you're after the creation that's groaning, or something different. Yes, it's chapter eight. Thanks, Lachlan. So that's why he's up here. Let's go to chapter eight. Do you know the verse? I'll talk Somewhere about. in the 20s. We can look together. Yeah. This is great. Okay. New was at the top of my page. Um, it's verse, start from verse 18. Chapter 8, verse 18. I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing to the glory that will be revealed in us. The creation waits in eager expectation for the sons of God to be revealed. What's that? So creation is waiting for the sons of God to reveal. There's a sense that creation... The world around us is waiting for humanity to rule it rightly. Okay, that's the sons of God. People to live rightly. Creation is going, stop stuffing me around. Creation is broken. Have a look, verse 20. For the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the glorious freedom of the children of God. We know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up until the present time. Not only so, but we ourselves who have been the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of the bodies. So creation is broken because of the way humanity has been living in it. Uh, uh, that's, that's a reality that, that our brokenness, and it's kind of, we kind of go, really? Our brokenness is so huge in the way that we're living in the world around us, not just with natural um, global warming and kind of environmental things that we're doing, but creation is groaning because of the way we've treated God. We think the way I treat God doesn't affect the world around us. The Bible's saying, no, very much it does. Earthquakes exist, tsunamis happen, like fires happen, all this sort of natural disasters happen because Adam and Eve and us have turned our backs on God. That's had a, an effect of creation groaning, saying, please bring the world the way it should be. Now, for some of you, you might be like, I don't think there's a cause and effect between those two. That's fine. You might think that. But that's what the Bible is saying is the reason why. It's not I can draw a direct line between, oh, you know, that person did this thing or this country made that new law, therefore they were judged with this thing. Um, though at times you do see throughout the Bible that there are events that happen that God does attribute to the nation like Sodom and Gomorrah and they get rained down with sulfur on them because of their rejection of God. Um, but the world is just groaning, waiting for the day that humanity is made right. And not only does Jesus' death and resurrection fix the problem with humanity and God, it fixes the problem of the world around us uh, being fixed and brought back into the new heaven and the new earth that is not broken. And so for someone who's a victim of an event, yeah. like a tsunami or like an earthquake, what do you have to say? Um, yeah, I think for those who've experienced those natural disasters, or usually it's those who've known people who have, um, how, do we, how do we think about this? Uh, the hope is you want to point people to saying, look, the world's broken too, and point people to the solution that hopefully we've seen this morning, now that Jesus has suffered for us, that he is the human who has lived perfectly, and that when he comes back, these things will be ended. So don't live for the here and now and be like, yes, 
Um, there's a sense in which if we, we want to love the world around us. We want to love creation and look after it. There's a sense in which it will be renewed. It is broken and God is coming back to fix it. And so it's to trust him in what he's doing through that as we grieve the wrongness of that. Um, yeah. Nice. Uh, still on this same kind of theme of our causing of suffering, is it fair to say we deserve God's judgment if the suffering that we have caused others isn't as serious as what others have caused? So maybe I've lied yeah. and that's hurt someone, but that's not as bad as killing someone. Yeah. Different level of suffering that we've caused. I think I'll answer this in a medium-length way. We, we don't recognise the reality of what it means to reject the God who made us. I don't recognize how big a thing that is to say to God, I'm not going to live your way. And that is ultimately what sin is. Um, so imagine, um, I, you know, one day we, we kind of have a bit of a fight and I kind of hit Lachlan. Never happened. I'd be hitting you, but, you know, sorry. Thanks, brother. We can imagine. Yeah, imagine. imagine. Okay. Now, that's not very nice, and there's a problem in the relationship between me and Lachlan. He could go and press charges. We could maybe sort through that. Imagine I then went back to Australia to my mum and was so angry uh, at the way Lachlan had treated me. Maybe they kicked me out of New Zealand because they're like, you're, you're a criminal because you're Australian, and they kind of sent you away. So I went back to my mum, and my mum said something nasty to me, so I punched her in the face. Now, suddenly that feels worse, doesn't it? Something I said about that made you go, oh, that's not right. And that's because my mum has a level of, she, she made me. What am I, why is that the case? Mum calls the police. The police come round. The policeman comes in the door. What do I do? Liverpool kiss, right? I headbutt him in the face and break his nose. Now, that's even worse again, isn't it? Now, I've actually assaulted someone who's representing the law. And at that point, there's, there's, the gramifications of this are, are, are even larger again for assaulting a police officer. At that moment, they take me to jail. For some reason, on the way to jail, they, they stop and take me past the Prime Minister. I see the Prime Minister. I punch her in the face. Now I've assaulted the whole of New Zealand if I was back here. Somehow that happened in that story. <laughs> now, what would happen then if uh, they kind of kicked me out? Imagine, let's just change it for a little bit. Uh, imagine I punched Trump in the face. You think I'm even going to get close to him? Like, just the wrath that would unleash on me because of the level. This is the most, one of the most powerful countries in the world, and I've, represent, I've, I've misaligned, I've not treated their leader properly. I've, I'm against them. I'm hostile against them. Imagine I reject the true and living God who made me, who's sustaining my life right now. I say, I want nothing to do with you. His right response would be to say, okay, I sustain your life. You don't want anything to do with me, then you don't get life. Death is what I deserve. So anytime I have rejected the true and living God, I'm deserving of death. Now, that doesn't mean that our different things we do wrong and the suffering we cause on earth doesn't have different earthly ramifications. It does. There are, there are realities that, that seem to hurt more than potentially me lying to someone or, or punching someone in the face or murdering someone. Um, but the reality is at heart, it's exactly the same thing to God. Because at the same time, I've said, I don't think you should be on the throne. I want to be on the throne. I want to run my life my way without you. And that's like assaulting the president of America. I deserve death because I've said, I don't need what you bring. So I want to say at that point, um, yes, there is a difference in the earthly suffering, but we need to recognize the reality of the one we are wronging when we wrong God. It's huge. So suffering is not the way it's meant to be. It's brought into the world because of our brokenness, our rejection of God. God's brought a solution for that through Jesus. But get practical for us, Ron. How do you actually ask God to help you face suffering? Knowing these truths about God and Jesus doesn't feel tangible. 
as a solution to our suffering. There'll be people here suffering today, people who know others who are suffering. What can we practically do to continue through suffering? Yeah. Uh, a couple of things. One, uh, if you're not suffering, walking alongside the person who is uh, we're given to one another as the church body uh, to love and care for one another and walk alongside one another. Uh, and so helping one another through that suffering. Now, it's not coming up and just saying, oh, look, suck it up. You've got eternity to look forward to. Come on, just read the Bible. Uh, recognize that Jesus took time out uh, and was kind of in tears because of seeing Lazarus dead. Uh, he took time out in the Garden of Gethsemane and he comes back and the disciples are not even praying their sleep. He's like, what is, what is this? I'm about to face the wrath of God for the sin of the world and you're sleeping? Uh, We need to be an attentive church that's caring for and looking after one another, loving one another as we do that. Now, that means sharing your suffering. I want to say this. Sometimes we're like, oh, no, I've just got to have that stiff upper lip and just move on and just pretend there's nothing going on. That's what it means to be a Christian. I just onward Christian soldiers and off we go. No, it means we need to be honest with one another about what we're finding hard, not showing everyone that we've got life sorted. I don't have life sorted. You don't have life sorted. Let's be honest. And so we need to be able to show one another where we are suffering and ask for help. It's so hard to ask for help, isn't it? Because we show, to show that we uh, need to depend on others. Um, but actually sharing together in that. Uh, the third thing, so help others share your suffering. Um, as you're going through it, the thing that has helped me through times that are hard is just to refocus on the, the example of suffering and the solution to suffering in Jesus. It's actually to recognize that Yes, I'm going through this, but I get so caught up in the here and now and this immense pain that's in front of me or whatever it is, and I, my world just revolves around it. It takes up all of my radar. I need to be able to step back and go, do you realize God the Son died for me? He, has, he knows what it is like. He's experienced what it is like to, to withhold uh, temptation and to experience suffering for nothing that he has done wrong, and he did that for me. And so that truth allows me to kind of reframe what's going on and look forward to what is coming in eternal life and enjoy the relationship with the God that I have now, which fourthly means I can pray. It means asking God to relieve that suffering. We should pray for healing. Ask God um, to take away the pain that exists. There's nothing wrong with that. Jesus says it. If there is any other way, take this cup from me, but not my will but yours, he said. Uh, And aren't we glad that he did the will of the Father and him? And so it's coming to our God and asking him to heal us. And I've seen examples of people being healed. I've seen examples of people not being healed. Uh, It's not necessarily got anything to do with how much faith you have or what you have done, but God's plans, and so can trust him. And again, Romans 8 is a great chapter. Go home and read that. Um, But Romans 8, uh, at the end of it, this is helpful. Romans 8, verse 28. Classic. Many people know it, but I don't know. Get it tattooed on your arm if you believe in tattoos. Or okay. Talk about that later. Uh, and we know in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who've been called according to his purpose. We know in all things, not some, in all things, God works for the good of those who love him who've been called according to his purpose. Whatever is going on for you right now, God knows, and there's a reason. You might not be able to see it. Trust him. It is for your good if you love him. So uh, take him at his word. 
keep saying that verse to yourself. As um, uh, I remember um, the most helpful thing for me when we, when we lost our first child, it was an ectopic pregnancy, so they had to remove um, Sarah's fallopian tube as well uh, from that. Uh, so it was quite big. Sarah's in hospital, and the minister of a church I was working in called me, and all he said was this. He said, Rowan, that sucks. It's just horrible. I'm sorry. You know, it was the best thing anyone ever said to me throughout that time? Just recognizing that that's not the way the world's supposed to be and that's horrible. We don't need to have all the answers because we trust the one who is the answer. And so it's, it is. Keep on looking back to him. It's really helpful, Ron. If you're the reading type, there are a few books on the bookstall that can help you as you're going through suffering at the moment or help you prepare for that suffering that might come. So do go check that out or come and find Rowan if there's some more questions. But do you want to pray for us? Yep. And then we'll sing a couple more songs as we close up our morning. Thanks, brother. Let's pray. Our Lord, it is a joy to know that you have loved us so clearly at the cross. We admit it is hard as we go throughout pain and suffering and disease and brokenness. But we ask that you would help us to trust that you have both dealt with our brokenness in Jesus and offered the solution to it. We ask that you'd help us to trust those words, that all things work for the good of those who love you. That while we might not see it here and now, you are in control and you are good. And so we pray that you would fix our eyes on that end prize, that we would endure suffering in godly ways, trusting in you. We pray that our eyes might be fixed on the day Jesus comes back, on the day that all things are seen for as they truly are, And we stand back and say, wow, God, you are amazing. So we ask you to amaze us consistently through your word, by your spirit, to endure hardship. Pray this in your son's name. Amen.